good, Amy, probably to go over the schedule for the day, too, just for Mark's sake. All right, that's a good idea. <laughs> so this morning, we're going to... We have to talk about the about um, some, some thoughts. I, I'm going to lead the discussion, but everyone is welcome to jump in. I may move us along because I have like four things I would like to admit before 1140. Okay, so a little time. So the, the, this morning's discussion will mostly be drawn um, from searching her own history. That, that's all right. Is that okay yes. to talk about this? And then, um, and then at 12.30, a bunch of other people will come, and we will have lunch. And then at 2, we'll have a, a session where you will teach, and we, and we will cut that off no later than 4.30. Uh, and then we'll have another break unless people go home. And then more or less this group, again, maybe some other, something we do, but another small group will have dinner. You may have already gotten a lot of her. But you actually know there's no end. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> we'll dip your toes in the water. Hurrah! <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll give our dinner discussion, if that's all right. Now, okay, so dinner discussion, is there anything after dinner? No. Okay, and then well, do you have a... I mean, it's a leisurely dinner. So do you have a sense of when that... I um, just want to make sure for Mark's sake that he has an idea of what we're looking at in terms of the evening. He has veto power. Oh, I don't really care. Okay. Whenever is fine because I, okay. I don't have. I don't remember. Talked about maybe coming back. For I'm not. I'm not gonna. No. I. I. I they'll be having that. Um. Uh, their online. You know, small group, and. Uh, the assumption is that I'll be coming in at some point while they're in the middle of that, and I'll just okay. step in and okay. wave on the computer to all okay, of the people, great. and then go to my room. So okay, there's great. no uh, Very good. time. So Doesn't I think Logan is going to take you home this evening. Okay, and great. Thomas is headed off to. But to Houston, to I heard Houston, that. And uh, I have a school girl. I have to get to bed. So yeah. I'm happy to do that. Uh, can I borrow someone's cell phone for DPS stuff? Sure. Because mine doesn't work no very consistently. I can also draw you a map to. It's almost a straight shot. Okay. Almost a straight shot. We could also use my cell phone. That would be good. For the GPS. Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. You can make a prayer? Well, of course. <coughs> of course. You want to pray? No, stand in the Up into truths, 
and allow us to be with you where you are. Yes. Lord our God, as friends and as those who share in wonder and joy, even the trouble coming. Help us to be close to you, Lord. Ground us in truth and anchor us to your promises. To Israel, and thank you for inviting the nations into this these great promises. Reveal to us truth. Draw us closer in friendship and praying. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to turn off the air conditioner to facilitate conversation. If anyone gets overheated, just let me know and I'll turn it back on. I think it would be nice to not have to shout over. So I was going to begin with the, uh, Thomas's favorite verse from Malachi. And those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them if the man spares his own son. And so my prayer, Lord, is that you would take joy in our conversations with you. So, Mark, um, I was wondering if you could start us off by talking about New Covenant and, and what you, um, how you envision New Covenant because I think that is tr tremendously helpful. Um, it's, yeah. mm -hmm. Sure. Well, uh, well I, I think that uh, you know from the uh, the Jeremiah text itself. Uh, the, uh, I mean, there are a number of things that are, that I think are clear in the text but are usually not pointed out uh, by Christian interpreters. Um, the, uh, This is from uh, Jeremiah 31. I'll just uh, read the text. The days are surely coming, says Adonai, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says Adonai. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says Adonai. I will put my law within them, my Torah within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, no, Adonai. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, says Adonai. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Now, uh, you know, the usual way in which Christians read this is simply that God makes a new covenant uh, through, uh, through Jesus and that new covenant is with the church. And, but what one sees in this text is that the new covenant is made with Israel. Uh, 
it is a gift given to Israel. Uh, and there's nothing in the text about the church or even about the Goyim, about the, about the Gentiles. It's clear within them the, the, the developing interpretation and, and the, re, the reality, the way it works out in uh, the, the life, the death, the resurrection of Yeshua, that of course this is an expanded reality in which the Gentiles are, are enabled to share um, in, in this reality of the New Covenant. But the New Covenant is fundamentally a gift to Israel and it's not Israel redefined. Uh, it is the, the uh, flesh and blood descendants of uh, Abraham and Isaac uh, and Jacob. Um, and uh, so that's the first point. And the fact that, that's, that, that that is uh, integral to the text becomes clearest in the, the verses that immediately follow. Uh, which says, thus says Adonai, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. Adonai Tzvaot is his name. If this fixed order were ever to cease from my presence, says Adonai, then also the offspring of Israel would cease to be a nation before me forever. Um, you know, and, and, and so the, the context is this eternal promise that God is making to Israel, uh, and it's, this is clearly the flesh and blood of people of Israel, so that the, the new covenant is something that is, is given to, um, to or is promised to, to Israel, and the first taste of it is given um, to Israel in, in the, the death and the resurrection of, of, of Yeshua and the, the disciples of Yeshua, uh, and, and particular in the Last Supper, now, the, the second thing about the New Covenant from this text that's often not noticed is just that um, the, uh, the, the Torah uh, that uh, is given to Israel at Sinai is not clearly different from the Torah that's given in the New Covenant. It is... Um, What's new, it says in the text, uh, is that uh, Israel has broken the Torah, has broken the covenant, and been unfaithful to the Torah. So that the newness of the new covenant is that Israel is now going to be enabled, empowered, equipped to actually live out the Torah. And through the, and this whole notion of the Torah being written on the heart uh, that, uh, that is expressed here, is this idea of the of the Torah actually empowering a, uh, a a way of life? But there's no indication, at least within the text, that it's actually a different Torah. You know, it's simply Torah. Uh, you know, the the the, the teaching of God given um, to Israel, um, and uh, so uh, Israel is the same. And the Torah is the same. Uh, it's the, Israel's the same in the sense of it's the same recipient, the same people. And the, the Torah of Sinai is fundamentally the same Torah. It's just now the people being able to actually live out um, this reality. And therefore, it really in some ways makes more sense to think about this as a, a renewal of Israel's covenant 
as opposed to a new covenant being a, t a completely different reality, you know. And, and the, the notion of new, when we you say, well, I want to have, I want to get a new car, uh, and you, that means you're getting rid of your old car and you're getting a new car and it's a different, it's a whole different thing. Um, and it may be, it may be similar, you know, it may be the same color, it may be, uh, you know, uh, a, a 2019 model of the same sort that you had before, uh, uh, of a 2015 model, but it's a different car. Um, and that's a different um, sense of new from, say, having, um, uh, t taking your car in and having, uh, you know, a radical changes made in the, in, in the body of the vehicle uh, and, and replacing all kinds of stuff on the inside um, to the point where it's almost like a new car you, and, and it's, it, but it's fundamentally still the same car that's been renewed. And so um, I think the picture here of the New Covenant is, I would say, one that's more like that second picture of a, of a renewal, covenant renewal, um, which fits the history of Israel where there's continual renewals of the covenant. Deuteronomy itself could be seen as a renewal of the covenant. What happens um, after the incident of the, uh, the golden calf could be understand as a, understood as a, a renewal of, uh, of the covenant. What happens with the, is, uh, the return of the, of the Jewish people from exile in Babylon could be understood, and with Ezra and Nehemiah, could be understood as a renewal of the covenant. There's a continual process of the covenant being renewed. And this, what's happening with, 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 with Jesus um, and his disciples and the gift of the spirit is uh, the most decisive renewal um, of the covenant with Israel. And then this opening and expansion to the, the, uh, the nations of the world, which is the most dramatic um, new development. Now, final point about the new covenant, and maybe the most radical point, which I don't really talk about so much in, um, in Searching Your Own Mystery, uh, but which comes out in my new book a little bit more. Uh, and I think that part is recognizing that the new covenant is fundamentally an eschatological reality. Now, what does it mean to say it's an eschatological reality? Um, well, what it means to say the new covenant is an eschatological reality is that um, it's a reality which has only partially been realized. Uh, it's not a full reality yet on earth. It's a full reality in the person of the resurrected Messiah. But the new covenant, again, it's usually treated by Christians as, okay, Israel had the old covenant. We now simply have the new covenant as it's a possession. It's simply something which is this existing reality at this stage of things. But I think the only way you can take that approach is if you don't take very seriously what Jeremiah 31 is actually saying. You know, just just look at it. Say, okay, what the text says is, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, no Adonai. Are we in the position right now? Has the church been for the last 2,000 years in the position where it's unnecessary to have teaching or exhortation? Because 
the knowledge of God is so imbued in every individual who's part of the community that they simply do live out the Torah. It's written on their hearts. They're simply doing it. They're doing it perfectly. You know, is that the reality of the life of of the church? Um, you know, uh, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, says Anunoi. Um, the, um, I mean, honestly, can one look at the history of the church, or can one look even at the reality of the church today, and say that there's a, a noticeable. An, a noticeable and dramatic improvement in the capacity, in, in the living out of the reality of the Torah from what existed before or from what exists for that sake among the Jewish people today. If you take this text seriously, you would have to, if the new covenant was simply an existing reality that the church has and that the Jewish people don't have, there should, it should be like day and night. You should just be able to look and say, the Jewish people, they're living in the shadow. The church, it's living in, in the reality. And that, that wouldn't be just a kind of spiritual vision or a mystical vision that comes from, say, you know, being in, a, in a, a worship service and being taken to another level. It would simply be a kind of empirical reality. You looked around, you saw how people were living, and one group was living off the Torah in a completely different way in, 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 uh, than the other ones. So... The fact that that's not the case, um, I, I, I understand, is to say the new covenant in its full realization is an eschatological rally that will only be realized with the coming of Yeshua, with the coming of Jesus. Um, it's already a reality because it's already embodied in the person of Jesus himself. He did live it. He, does, he did fulfill this in this way. Everything about this text that speaks about the covenant does apply to the life that Yeshua lived and the life that Yeshua continues to, to live as the one who intercedes for us before the Father. And so it's not that the new covenant is not a reality. That's to say it is eschatological. Our life is eschatological. To say it's eschatological is not to say it's simply the future. It's something that we anticipate now, that we experience now, that touches us now and, and, and transforms us now. But it is not a fulfilled reality, a completed um, reality in this world on this earth. Um, and now this is also my understanding of the way in the book of Hebrews um, the new covenant is actually being used. Uh, and uh, it, so it would take a bit. The old is passing away yeah. instead of the old has passed Exactly, away. exactly. My understanding, like in the book of Hebrews, it, the, the, the number of these points don't ever get noticed, you know, but in the book of Hebrews, you know, when it talks about um, the, uh, the structure of the tabernacle was, um, was a kind of uh, type or prophetic picture, it says, that refers to this age. And what it seems to mean is it refers to the distinction between this world, this age, and the age to come. Olam olam and the, um, the, like the, the removal of the distinction, the veil, the break between the two tents um, is this representation of the total, um, the, the entry fully from the, this world into the world to come. Uh, and, uh, and, and so 
Um, the book of Hebrews talks about the old is, is getting old and it's getting ready to pass away, but it hasn't actually passed away. Uh, and uh, the, Yeshua as the resurrected Messiah in the heavenly place is already, uh, you know, is, is already entered into that reality and is the reality of the, of the new covenant. Uh, and that's a reality which we have now in, in, as a foretaste through the gift of the Spirit um, through our union uh, together in Jesus. And so it is a, uh, a tasted reality now, but it's not a complete reality. Um, and that then also dramatically changes how one thinks about the relationship of the church and the Jewish people. Um, and uh, maybe a final, just a, a real a final point is I then understand the Because I understand Jesus is establishing a particular kind of bond with the, the Jewish people through the incarnation, um, fundamentally, um, and then through the resurrection. In my view, it's not like the church enters into this like new stage of reality, and the Jewish people simply stay where they were, as if like sometimes you know we, uh, we can think about it. The church, the Jewish people, live in the old covenant and the church lives in the new covenant. But um, I, I don't quite see it that way. I mean, I think that if Jesus is the reality of the new covenant, then the resurrected Jesus continues to live also in the midst of the Jewish people. And so there's a sense in which this promise of the new covenant that, that endures in relationship to the Jewish people is one also that the Jewish people have all, all also have a taste of. In other words, the coming of Jesus has an impact, a an impact on the, the life of the Jewish people. The Jewish people are different after the incarnation and after the resurrection. Just as all humanity has changed as a result of the incarnation and the resurrection. You know, that, that, Jesus, that the humanity, it's not that humanity was, is the same. <laughs> Something changes in the very the, the, the reality of this world through the coming of Jesus. And that's true also for the life of the Jewish people. And so I think there's a different sense, a different mode, a different way in which the Jewish people, as the Jewish people, um, have this, this new covenant reality and have this relationship to Jesus. But fundamentally, it's about, just as I argue in Searching Our Mystery and in other places, that Jesus continues to live on in the midst of the Jewish people and as he lives on in the midst of the church. Jesus is the new covenant. If Jesus is present, then in a sense, the new covenant is also present, but in a more hidden and veiled way within the, the life of the Jewish people. So. Maybe did you? Just cut me off before I'm going to go too long on this. This last point, Mark, I have never heard before the last two points. Um, so I guess my question is how. Within Messianic Judaism, how common is it to look at the, the New Testament this way? And how well received is this point of view from the church, the Catholics that you know in the Messianic Jewish dialogue or others? Yeah. Is this a little bit cutting edge? Or, or, or not so yeah. much? It's, it's new. This is new. Yeah, yes. 
Hmm. Well. And it's fundamentally an eschatological reality, so it's yeah. not a complete exactly. new covenant yes. that Christians, just as you so rightly yeah. say, call our own, yeah. and we do not That's read right. Jeremiah with that lens. Exactly. And for some people it's a, a wonderful revelation, and for others it's very much so. Exactly. You know, what I would say is, in terms of the Messianic Jewish movement, I would say... Um, I don't think most Messianic Jews naturally think about it this way. Most and most have not heard about it, have heard it spoken of in this way. My experience is that when it is presented in Messianic Jewish contexts, um, it's rather widely affirmed. You know, it's it's not like as it. In other words, I think that most Messianic Jews, when they when they hear a presentation of the covenant that's in the line of what I've just presented, um, you know, would, um, yeah, that, that they, would, they would tend to say, hey, yes, I never thought about it that way, but it actually, that fits my intuition or my sense of how, of, of, uh, of what's true. Um, particularly, I would say, the sense of the new covenant as, as an eschatological reality. I would say um, there's more disagreement internal to the Messianic Jewish movement about this, this point of then how do we understand Jesus in the, continue, dwelling in the midst of the Jewish people. That's one more controversial of, uh, and, and, and my own distinctive position. In terms of the dialogue with the, with the church uh, yeah I think it is uh, It would be, it's more controversial in those settings. Uh, I think m m most, many theologians would, would be able to go along with this, um, even if they haven't thought about it quite in this way. Um, but, uh, but those who are simply in positions of leadership, I think would be more resistant um, it, it's sort of threatening, you know, because there's a sense of this is it, this is our identity. We have the new covenant, and it, it becomes again that sense of this almost like a possession. Or um, and uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what you think, um, Hogan. You also have a lot of experience in theological. In how would how, I mean? How would um, how do you think within the various church settings of uh, um, this? eschatological reading of... The eschatological bit doesn't seem uh, the problem to my mind that people would take with it. It's going to be more understanding um, your conjunction of carnal genealogical Israel as it relates to the eschatological mm -hmm. bit mm -hmm. and then kind of yeah. moving back the target in such yeah. a way that I think that's the bit that I'm not sure if I'm articulating that very clearly. No, I, I to me, I, I think... Uh, I think that's probably true. It's then how you, how, it's the emphasis on, it's putting together the eschatological notion of the New Covenant with the earlier points of the, this is a covenant that's made with Israel uh, and uh, that has not changed, you know. Um, in, in Searching Your Own Mystery and in other places, I, um, I'm, I cite a particular Christian theologian 
um, on these points, who is a Lutheran, a, a very famous Lutheran German theologian, um, who's, who's making a very, in, in, at least in those quotes, is making the same kind of point. Uh, who's that? His name is Wolfhard Pannenberg. And, uh, and, Pan, and he makes, he, you know, he, he, I, I have a, the quote again in Searching Your Own Mystery that, where he says, this is, this is a covenant that's made with Israel uh, and the, the disciples who are all Jews are the first ones to enter into it. And he basically says that the fact that it's, you know, Gentiles have now, um, you know, uh, have, uh, have entered into it as well doesn't change the fact that it was funda it's fundamentally a covenant that's made with Israel. And then Pannenberg's whole orientation also, while I, he doesn't in this quote make it, is uh, very much the kind of eschatological one that I'm trying to, to make as well. And in fact, he, his argument in general about eschatology is it's the church's tendency to have an overly realized eschatology that doesn't have enough of a sense of the, what is yet to be realized and accomplished that has led often to the biggest problems in, in the church's relationship to the Jewish people in history. Mariana, just real fast, in reaction. Mariana presented this idea of the New Covenant being with Israel in Wittenberg yeah. in her talk. And then also here, when she came here, and it definitely caused a stir. It was not a, yeah. you know, oh, okay, I get it. It was, yeah. yes. No, I think that's... And some responded very positively, which is simply, I've never heard this before, mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. their heart is open to Israel, and they yeah. want to know what God knows. It sits well with me, the point that it's the eschatological in some way, I feel like we're called, like Father Peter, to prepare, look into preparing exactly. the earth for the second coming. Yes. So we more easily receive this longing for what is not yet. Mm -hmm. That's not common yeah. enough. That's right. My brothers and sisters in, that's the, right. in the church. That's right. It is like a realized deal. Yeah, that's right. No, I think that's true. And... Uh, so I think it's putting all of these together that I, I, I think it's, um, uh, it, it's, it, it, it's uh, one of the things is just obvious, it's not the normal way in which Christians think about these things. Okay, okay so I'm not kind of, um, I'm not a theologian. I don't, I don't have academic words. But this idea of, of um, we, we have entered. We have entered this. We have tasted of this new covenant in the person of Jesus, exactly. but also in the Holy Spirit. Yes. Because my my, my reading of Scripture is that it, it is the Spirit that enables us yeah. to keep Torah, right? And and though we may not keep it perfectly, we don't yeah. see this you know, widely. We do see we yes. do see um, renewal of the Spirit. Yes. And and I'm not and I'm not talking. I'm not talking about. Here I'm not talking about like the charismatic renewal. I'm talking about individual people, mm -hmm. and I'm talking more like like the lives of the saints or the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. falls, um, and the apostles see the Holy Spirit visibly and you know, um, manifestly fall on Gentiles and say, "Okay, well, they they are part. They are part of us. We cannot prevent them yeah. from being baptized." I have two kind of two directions that that idea um, is leading me. One, one is this, this sense of um, 
kind of the interplay between the sacraments and this work of the Holy Spirit. And you talk about baptism in your book and how Jesus really speaks of three different baptisms. There's baptism of water, baptism of the Spirit, and baptism of fire. So there are three, and then his life is kind of continually um, progressing. And you talk about how for a Jew, baptism is something of a different experience than it is for a Gentile. For a Gentile, baptism is sort of baptism into a, a spiritual Israel and becoming yeah. grafted into these provinces and you know and being born, being born again, being born of the Spirit. Um, whereas a Jew, it is maybe you could articulate better. Yes. Much of what, what baptism is for a Jew. Yes. And I'll come back if you don't mind because I'm going somewhere. <laughs> sure. But yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, um, a, a number of years ago, there was a um, uh, an Israeli Messianic Jewish woman. Uh, she did a wrote a, a doctoral dissertation at uh, Hebrew University. And it was, uh, I think, a department of maybe of anthropology, and it was, uh, it was a study that, in which she did a lot of interviews with Messianic Jews in in Israel, uh, and uh, and what, what she, and 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 then I think she may have done some some interviews with some Gentile Christians as well, um, but. What she discovered was this common theme uh, for, you know, for Jews who had come to faith in Jesus, which was the sense of coming home, the, the, the sense of of return, of of, of you know um, finding who finding themselves, and. She was contrasting that with more narratives, the narratives of, uh, of, of non-Jews coming into relationship with Jesus, where the most common thing that she encountered was the sense of rupture. Mm -hmm. you know, the sense of a break with an old way and an entering into this new, this kind of, this new world. You know? mm. uh, and, uh, and I think that that is which was purely, it wasn't like a, she wasn't writing a theological treatise, she was just doing a, an anthropological study. Um, but I thought she was striped, she was coming across something that was a very deep mm -hmm. spiritual truth that I think gets at this notion of baptism. You know, that for, for non-Jews, baptism is a kind of rupture, a kind of break from, you know, it, at least in the it was originally, you know, uh, and still is to some extent when when baptism represents a real conversion and turning, as opposed to simply, um, you know, a, a, a rite uh, um, of passage um, that's just normally entering, growing up in the life of the church, um, you know. But but for those for whom baptism is a uh, is an actual turning and a repentance and, and a change, then. It, it, there is the sense of a break with one world and this, or you know, like in the early church, the early um, catechumenate process, 
the way it always got described as the idea from darkness to light. Well, it's that way in Turkey, where our sun is. Yeah. Because. Oh yeah, that'd be another. Sure, in that yeah. kind of a setting, you know. Mm -hmm. But for for Jews, even when they haven't been religious Jews, uh, and are not actually they're not returning to something that, you know, they 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 had clearly the experience of 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 this new relationship with Jesus and therefore the experience of baptism um, and the reality of baptism uh, that, it, that gets that maybe that's another way of putting it the reality of baptism that gets um, that then on the subjective realm actually gets experienced as such so something that's both an objective reality and the subjective uh, appropriation of it is one of um of just a not one of rupture it's one of a kind of discovery of a different of a of a level of, con of a continuity of a of, oh this is who i am <laughs> you know uh, and uh and and so um you know it's uh that's now the other I mean, yeah go on just the metaphor that comes to mind for me is born again or would you describe birth as primarily a yeah. rupture with a life in the womb? No, that's not how you think of birth. Yeah. And that, that seems to me kind of what you're saying. Yes. Now, the other part of it, um, and this one I don't think necessarily is always one of that does get played out in on a subjective realm because I don't think it is um, taught very well and, and, and also on the, the level of people's lived experience is not uh, expressed well. But um, I think that what baptism, and, and what, I, what I present on baptism in Searching Our Own Mystery, is that the, the notion of rebirth, of regeneration, uh, has, is fundamentally and, and, and on the first level a corporate reality rather than an individual reality. Uh, we think of regeneration, rebirth, primarily as an individual reality, and then perhaps secondarily and metaphorically a on a corporate, some sort of corporate reality. Um, you know, but we receive the Spirit, we're baptized, we're, in, in, we're, con we're, we be, we're connected to Jesus. Now we are, as an individual, born again. You know? uh, but you know, the, the notion of regeneration like in terms of the, you know, the one first text that that describes this is in Matthew, and it, it's in the context of Jesus uh, speaking about the uh, the twelve apostles sitting on the twelve thrones judging the tribes of Israel, and he says in the regeneration, meaning in like the regenerated world, uh, the. Uh, Ultimately, Israel is restored. So the regeneration there is a cosmic corporate reality that's got to do with the national restoration of Israel. And this is this goes back, of course, to um, Ezekiel thirty-seven, you know, the, the resurrection of the dry bones. Um, and then what I also in in searching your own mystery, the other um, regeneration text that I speak about is the the John three John. Uh, three passage in, in the Nicodemus passage: Unless you're born of water and of spirit, you shall not, um, you 
enter the kingdom of God, see the kingdom of God. But uh, in uh, what I, I see, John chapter three and actually John chapter four, which is um, Jesus dealing with uh, uh, the uh, you know the Samaritan woman, um, as passages that are have a kind of um, intertextual relationship to Ezekiel um, 36 and 37. And, and so in thir Ezekiel 36, you have the, the you know, uh, the water, the, the, the water and uh, the spirit, you know, uh, being cleansed, washed with, uh, with water and a new heart and a new spirit being given. But again, that's in the context of God's promises to Israel in exile and Israel being brought back um, in, into the land. Uh, and the, again, the, the Israel being able to live out the Torah. Uh, that's the Ezekiel 36 reality. And then the Ezekiel 37 reality of the dry bones is where you then get an image again of a kind of death and resurrection or rebirth. So that rebirth here is, this, is the notion of the people having died and being uh, born anew as a whole people, and the two chapters get connected through the same, a same one particular verse that's found in both chapters, which is, "I will put my spirit within them," um, so that the spirit becomes the agent of this rebirth. So that um, the whole notion of rebirth, then, um, in the in a t in texts like John three and four, which are talking about baptism, in my understanding, um, you know. Have a, are set against this backdrop of the the corporate re, renewal or rebirth of of the Jewish people, um, and so um, my understanding of when a Jew is baptized, um, they're they're entering into and in some ways the next stage of God's cor the, the beginning, the anticipation, kind of of the eschatological reality of Israel's. Um, renewal and rebirth that's the Ezekiel 36 and 37 reality and that when and so for 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 a Jew then it's actually entering into their own promise that's been given to the people when a Gentile is being baptized they're now being brought into this reality which is this new thing um, and it's also a corporate reality for them but it's a corporate reality where they as an individual are now being attached to a community that they didn't weren't attached to before Whereas for a Jew, it's entering into this heritage, which is part of the promise that was given to the people. Yeah, on exactly that point, as, as I was reading the book, that this, this passage from Peter, which I, First Peter, which I have known since I was a child, became different to me. That you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a yeah. holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So it's like in the yes. dark into the light. Yeah. But then it says, for once you were not a people, but now you are yeah, the people that's of right. God. That's right. You had not received mercy, but now you have received yeah. mercy. And so now it's, it's, it's um, so this people that we're becoming is um, is the people that God has 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 chosen people is grafting into yes. Israel. And so I, I, I the, I, I just I had that verse ringing through my ears the whole time I was like, wow, this means something different than something like better than I thought it might. I mean, because yeah. because like a holy nation, what does that mean? Is like well, all the Catholics are we a holy nation? Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, yeah. but what does this mean? Exactly. It has, it has a. It has, and, and so it's interesting that now we are people in a nation, and then the next verse is 
So I urge you to live as aliens and strangers, mm -hmm. which is kind of interesting. Since, since now you have an identity, live like strangers. Uh, it's kind of interesting. I like that. Um, so what verse is it in? First uh, Peter 2, 8 through 9. Now, I, once again, I'm not a Bible scholar, but the, the, these letters, uh, this letter is addressed to churches in Asia yeah. Minor. And, and my, my, what I've heard, and once again, I'm not, I haven't studied deeply, is a lot of these churches started in synagogues, but then they were, um, there were a lot of Gentile converts. And so you have, um, you, you do have mixed churches here. You do, although it certainly looks as though they're primarily Gentile. Yes. And particularly in the first Peter text, it just, you know, like a text like the one you read is not the way you would write to Jews. To Jews. You know, once you were no people. And in one way, it, it's a way that you would not write to Jews. But, but I think it, it assumes that when you're saying this, you know, it has an assumption behind it that you know what I'm talking about. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I Whereas I feel like that has been pretty much lost at this point. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. I think that's true. That's definitely true. Um, so back to the spirit. You know, I, I've also been been really struck by something you said when Jesus talks to Nicodemus and says, "Aren't you a teacher of the law? You should understand these things." Yeah. It's like yes. <laughs> that's like it just makes me pull my hair out. It's like I'm not sure I understand what you're saying, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and this is why you know why I think going back to like Ezekiel 36 and 37 is so important because I think that what 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 Jesus is saying there is you're a teacher of Israel and what that means is you're a teacher of scripture mm -hmm. right. uh, and you should you should know this because Ezekiel 36 and 37 this is what Ezekiel 36 and 37 teaches so you should it's not that he's talking about some totally heavenly mystical truth um, that's inaccessible uh, to a Jewish teacher at the time he's um, he, he's saying there's um, what Jesus is talking about there is something that a Jewish teacher should know, which is um, there, you know, in, in order to enter into the next stage of Israel's existence, there's a kind of death and resurrection. You know. So to get a little more mystical, because, um, you talk about Yeshua being present in Israel. And this is kind of a, a, a dialogue that I have going on now um, with the Lord as I'm reading scripture and praying. And so it seems to me that the prophets in some ways had, had, a, had a foretaste or um, of this new covenant, um, both just by seeing the one who would fulfill it. Where is that? Oh, this is also in. This is also in. Just a second. This is in First Peter as well. As to the salvation of the prophets, this is verse ten of chapter one. As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, 
seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them, as in the spirit of Christ within them, was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So it talks about the spirit of Christ within them. So they have some sort of taste of the spirit of Christ. Um, they are at, 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 at least forerunners of the spirit. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I think about this, this is why I mean, just that that is a, um, a beautiful thought to me on a number of levels. But but one is when we talk about the church. And, and this comes up in the creed. Um, built from the church is built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. Somehow, having like the apostles and the prophets, they're both Jewish, but um, I don't know, there's this, this Old Testament and New Testament joining which feels very solid and wonderful. And I know you talk about the prophetic apostles. I, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not arguing against No, that. no, and I agree. I, I see no problem with both interpretations of those, mm -hmm. of apostles and prophets and prophetic apostles. I mean, I mean, I think the Ephesians text is primarily talking about the notion of prophetic apostles, but I think the later interpretation of it as apostles and prophets in the more of like New Testament, Old Testament sense is a, val is a, in, a valid interpretation as well. So, yeah. sorry for interrupting. No, the, and in the creed, though, um, I, I love the appendix on the creed. I, I easily talk all day about <laughs> that. Um, and, and I think I would like to, to get to one point. How are we doing that time? Okay. Especially the camera. But, um, Talk about what is missing in the creed. What's missing in the creed is a is a strong sense of um, well, the story of Israel. Yeah. We do get the Holy Spirit has spoken through the prophets, and that's maybe the closest you get in the creed to a reference to, to Israel. change gears completely for just a little bit. We're still in your book, but but I, there are several handouts here. Um, and this comes from the chapter on Jewish life as sacraments. Yes. 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 Yes.
I assume you don't need one. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> okay, so I, I want to just talk about this one section. For Jewish tradition, tradition the mitzvahs, the commandments constitute the heart of the Torah. They provide the framework for Israel's holy life and fulfillment of its priestly vocation. The connection between the mitzvahs, mitzvot. Mitzvot. Okay, thank you. And holiness appears in Numbers 1538 to 41, which is recited twice. Why don't you? I don't. I don't speak Hebrew. The third paragraph of the, how do you say this? Shema. 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 These verses speak of the fringes which Israelites are to affix to the four corners of their garments and which represent all of the commandments of the Lord. When Israelites look upon the fringes, they are to remember to do all my commandments. The latter verse ends with these words, and you shall be holy to your God. These words at the conclusion of verse 40 could be taken as a relational reason for keeping the mitzvot. In this reading, the keeping, how do you say it again? I'm sorry. It's mitzvot? Or mitzvot okay. Is the behavioral imperative implicit in a holy status? If one is holy, then one observes the commandments of God. In contrast, Jewish tradition has generally understood the latter as a promise contingent upon the fulfillment of the former. If you observe my mitzvot, then you shall be holy. In this view, observance of the mitzvot becomes a means of sanctification rather than its result. This is the interpretation reflected in the blessing recited before performing any ritual command, commandment. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your mitzvot and commanded us to. As the sages state, with every new mitzvah which God issues to Israel, he adds holiness to them. the mitzvot represent the characteristic behavior of God, and to keep them is to imitate God. The sages depict God as one who visits the sick, feeds the hungry, comforts the mourners. When Israel observes the mitzvot, that command such, the command such behavior, they are entering into God's own way of life. I find that very, very beautiful, and in keeping with Something that I, I felt, uh, something that just that I felt the Lord showed me about the parables in the same way. Jesus begins most of his parables, "The kingdom of heaven is like." And I, I used to interpret the parables more or less as little more or less as fables, but the point was sort of. Um, and I realized, no, no, this is. This is, the, this is the kingdom of heaven is like this, and so the king of heaven acts like this too. And so Jesus himself is, is not exactly, he, he, he lives the parables. They, they apply to him as much as they apply to us, in a sense. And I find this very, very beautiful, but I also, so here I am in this tension of like, okay, I, I understand that there are things about um, a Jewish identity to call genealogical Israel, 
which um, are not appropriate for Gentiles to participate in. But then there, but if there are commandments that embody the character of God, it seems that all of us as a yes. people would do these. Yes. Is that? Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. No, and I think that in that sense, I mean, the, 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 the mitzvot of the Torah, I mean, my, you know, my understanding of, um, of Acts 15, you know, the, uh, the Jerusalem Council, is that uh, not that the apostles are, are, are telling the Gentiles that they are free from the Torah. My understanding is that they are make they are distinguishing which commandments, which mitzvot of the Torah apply to them and which ones don't. Uh, and uh, and that for the commandments which apply as much to Jews and to Gentiles, um, you know, I think again the I I would see the the mitzvot as as having this kind of sanctifying character in the life of Gentiles as in Christians as much as they do in the life of Jews and that they uh, and you know when I, I think I in this chapter I talk about it too but you know in some ways I think I, this is like a bridge concept for understanding the sacraments you know? I mean in, in, in a sense the sacraments have the same sort of character. They are these these commandments, um, in this case, ordained by Yeshua Himself. Uh, you know that, uh, in the performance of the of the commandment, have this this character of and of of kind of making this contact, <laughs> this contact point. You know, with. The, the reality, the life, the presence of God. Because ultimately what, what sanctification means I mean, uh, is we tend to think about it primarily in moral terms. You know, that to become holy is to have your character transformed. And of course, that there's, that there's truth to that. But within, within the, the Torah, and I would say also prime, within the New Testament, um, Primarily, like holiness is the character of God, it's, or the, it is, and to speak about human beings um, becoming holy is talking about human beings being in the presence of God, uh, and and uh, it and becoming like God. Uh, it it it's not just like an individual reality of just becoming uh, having your character remolded. It's more like having God, the presence of God, both living within you and manifested within you, uh, and uh, and so um, you know it, it is a relational term about our connection to the living God, and uh, and so just as as I said, I think thinking about the mitzvot in Judaism, the way um, you know uh, Christians, at least of sacramental traditions, understand understand sacraments. That's why in this chapter it's about Jewish life as sacrament. Okay. Yes, we'll keep going abstract. <laughs> so 
So the, the chapter, the chapter on mutual indwelling. Um, and by this, I, I maybe want to define that mutual indwelling a little bit. Yes. Okay. Well, um, I'm in in this chapter. I'm drawing on. Uh, technical term uh, from that originated in both um, uh, Trinitarian and uh, Christo uh, Christological doctrine uh, in the early church. Um, the, uh, the, this Greek word was perichoresis. Uh, and uh, it, you know, it was a way both of speaking about the way the three persons of uh, uh, of the Godhead dwell within one another uh, and that we can't conceive of them as these three separate entities that somehow then enter into relationship with one another you know uh, and uh, and uh, in the same way uh, Christologically the human nature the divine nature um, within the person of Yeshua there's a mutual indwelling of the divinity and the humanity And so um, these are, you know, well-known concepts in, uh, in in Trinitarian thought and Christological thought, but they never made it. They haven't really made their way into ecclesiology and the understanding of the church. Um, and to some extent, there have been, you know, there have been attempts in in more uh, in the theology of the last 30, twenty or thirty years, like to more broadly think about. Our relationships with one another within the church, as as being like you know the relationships uh, of the the father relation of the father son, and in the in the Trinity, and you know this is this application of John seventeen, etc. But um, you know what I think is a a, a clearer analog or parallel um, to the Trinitarian and Christological understanding of this of mutual indwelling. Uh, is the understanding that just as there are three persons in the Godhead, just as there are two natures um, in the one person, Jesus, so there are two uh, two facets of uh, expressions of the life of the people of God uh, that are also one. Uh, and and so. This notion of mutual indwelling is a way of trying um, in Christological thought and Trinitarian thought to gr grapple with the, the mysterious sense of multiplicity and unity, of distinction and, 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 and unity. Um, and so what I'm, what I'm arguing is that the relationship of the Jewish people and um, the, the Church of the Nations, uh, ultimately on a kind of on the level of, an, of, um, of the objective reality from God's perspective is, is in fact one of the same kind of mutual indwelling. Uh, and that, that sociologically or historically what we've simply got are these two communities through time. Um, but from a more heavenly perspective that what you've got are these two realities that are enfolded one and within the other. 
And then within the chapter, I'm saying, well, sometimes through history, it's looked more like a wrestling match. You know, where when you have two wrestlers, they're entangled. They're, you know, at certain points, you might not be able to tell whose, whose arm it is and whose leg it is and whatever. They're all, their bodies are all kind of, I know. But what they're doing is that they're fighting with one another. But they're, they're still kind of one is enfolded within the other. That's the way on the level of history, the life of the church and the Jewish people has looked in some ways. You know? um, but that, uh, even that is an expression um, in, in a broken, fallen world of this, this deeper reality, um, which is supposed to be one more of a loving embrace, you know, rather than, uh, you know, uh, or perhaps more, again, a vision of, 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 of husband and wife uh, as opposed to two wrestlers. And so then one in the chapter I'm trying to argue for, for then the need to translate that vision in, into a, an actual lived reality, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, so that we move from the wrestling match into the, the lovers. Um, and so that's what I'm doing with it in the chapter. Thank you. That, has, that really that's more than answered my question. Because I... What I was stepping back a little bit to just to the CTR community, it, 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 this helps me a great deal to make sense of, of, um, of what the Lord has called us to do because we, we have these different um, pools. I, I think probably the first one thinking back to, to um, the point of Louis Dallier, the first one that we probably felt was this longing for the return of Jesus. And then after that, the Lord emphasized um, reconciliation, John 17, we're looking at that. Uh, but we realized as, as, as we're Catholic looking Protestant. from a Catholic right. Protestant sort of yes. point of view. But as we look more deeply into John 17 and the whole Last Supper discourse, we realize, oh, this, this is not about working out theological differences. This is the type of unity that comes from, uh, that comes from the Trinity. And so, so then we, um, the contemplation of the Trinity has become, and, so, and, then, and, then, and then it seems like, and out of the blue, like there's this Israel thing. You know, it's like, how, how, how could they all yes. be? And they are, are, are they related? But this makes sense. Yes. This makes a lot of sense. And I, I really love the very last part of um, um, your appendix on. I, these are all the same. Yeah, the, the post-Nicene Christology and the Messianic Jewish perspective. Um, and, and when I read this, I feel like oh, the, I, I have this great greater longing to, to be in dialogue and to have this, this shared life with, um, with the Jewish perspective because I, I, I feel like this contemplation of the Trinity is, um, is so crucial. It, it's so close to the heart of God. This is what he wants to draw us into. It's who he is. And it, it, it somehow it lifts our eyes 
to his heart and his desire instead of our little systems and our theology. But anyway, I, I, I probably won't go through this right now. I think there's one last thing. But, but your, I, what you're saying is that, that there, there is a, um, a distinction between the person of the father and the son, which, um, while affirming the divinity of Jesus, um, Jews have a strong sense of both his humanity and his subordination to the yeah. Father. And, and by and the word subordination, there's not a pejorative exactly. word, but, but, a, but kind of a, a source. The word. Yes. Um, in a way that keeps, keeps the persons more separate, though, of one substance, one yeah. being. And, and I think that that's the tension that we also feel and, and why people's alarms start going up when we talk about um, an ecclesia of the circumcision and ecclesia, yeah. because like, wait, we can't have two churches. We know yeah. we can't have exactly. two churches. This can't happen. This is this is not good. And if we have the same spirit, why do not? Why are we not? You know, all happy to be in one. That's right. Body. And and I mean, it, it raises like serious fear and anger among people in our own group that yeah. we know well. And and, it's, it, and and it makes sense to me that like, okay, this is if this is somehow related to the same type of, um, of fervor and, mm-hmm. and jealousy that, that went around the writing of the Nicene Creed for good reason, because yes. because you have these two seemingly paradoxical right. things you have to to marry, that I can understand that there is a lot of, um, a lot of reasonable tension around this topic. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, very much so. Okay. No, I think it... Uh, and I mean, I think in um, th- there are extreme positions that you find in um, in some segments of the Messianic Jewish movement, or in some segments of that uh, at least some phenomena that are identified as part of the Messianic Jewish movement, um, which. Uh, in which you get, you might you might have an analogy to the wrong kind of subordination mm-hmm. within the the Trinity, you know, something that's almost more Aryan, mm-hmm. you know. Um, in in other, and what I mean by that is an orientation of like the the where the church where the, an, an approach which totally delegitimizes the history of the church, mm-hmm. and which basically says the church. At an early stage, became pagan when it forsook Jewish ways, uh, and the church now needs to repent and come back to Judaism. You know, and uh, and that, in my view, is just as much missing the bow uh, as you know as an approach that simply denies that there's anything in Judaism that speaks to the life of the church. Um, that has to be um, recaptured, you know. And so I see the the one excess as being a kind of Aryan approach to uh, to the the life of the people of God, and um, the other approach as being one, you know, which is um, 
you know, losing the distinctiveness uh, and the order within the life of the Trinity. Uh, and it's always the case in Trinitarian theology. Those, these two realities have to be kept together. And I think the same thing is true on the level of ecclesiology of the life of the people of God in terms of the Jewish and the Gentile connection. Um, and so, um, you know, in, in terms of even of like the prophets, um, you know, I, there's a, t a tension in, some pro in the prophets between uh, pictures, eschatological pictures, where the, the gent Gentiles in the age to come simply flow towards Jerusalem. And you have this, this motif, which is sometimes called the pilgrimage of the nations, and the nations making their way to Jerusalem. But then you have this really extraordinary text in Isaiah, you know, where the picture, it, it speaks about Assyria and Egypt and, and Israel in the midst, midst of them, and where God speaks to Egypt and says, e Egypt, my people, and Assyria, my people, and where an altar, altars are built in Assyria and in Egypt, you know, where in they, and in that image, it's not Egypt and Assyria simply coming to Jerusalem. You know, it's God doing something in Egypt and in Assyria that transforms Egypt and Assyria and makes them places of, wor of worship as well, where God is present in the midst of them. And it's this tension or dynamic, I think, in that is that, that reality capturing on the one hand the sense in which Jerusalem always remains the center, not just of, of the Jewish people, but of the church as well, of the people of God. And at the same time, the way in which in that going out, that the way in which the church is God making his home in the midst of all of the nations of the world and doing something in history where that the Jewish people have to acknowledge the way in which God has worked in the life of the church and the Messianic Jewish community has to acknowledge what God has done in the history of the, the church of the nations just as much as the church of the nations needing to recognize God's enduring work and covenantal purpose in the life of the Jewish people. And it's it, this tension between the two of them I see as again parallel to the, that tension in Trinitarian theology. What time is it? 11.30 almost. Yeah, 11.30. Um, Sam, Caroline, Justin, Justin, yeah. anything to say? Sam? No? Oh. Uh, I have a question. How would you want to talk about the claim that the Decalogue makes on Gentile Christians given that the way we participate in it is through sort of the incarnate Torah that's eschatological? Yeah. Yes. Um, situated in such that it's not. Yes. Very good. A very good question. Again, this is one that would, is uh, as delicate and difficult um, because um, most of the Christian traditions have built themselves around the Decalogue in terms of moral teaching, as if you know, with the sense, even in some of the some sense, well, the Decalogue. This is the universal part yeah, is distinguished it's from the rest. Like autonomous. Yeah. Like, yeah natural law that exactly exactly which just turns Judaism into like the summation of natural religion yes right? exactly yes. whereas yeah my understanding of the Decalogue is it's very it, it is again part of the mitzvot that are given specifically to Israel 
and, and that as a it, that it's not like this is our um, commandments that as a whole unit can be somehow uh, plucked out of their context, the covenantal context of God's relationship to the Jewish people and treated as the universals. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, obviously, you know, it's very interesting, like when Paul is giving teaching in Romans or in Galatians for these churches from the nations and, and he's speaking to Gentiles, he uses the Decalogue, but he always uses what we'd call the second table of the Decalogue. He simply quotes from the from what we call the second table. Um, second and table meaning the second, the last set of commandments that have to do with the relationship of human beings with one another. You know, with the first table of the commandment being the commandments that deal with the relationship between God and 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 Israel. Uh, and uh, and so clearly. The, those commandments Paul is treating is understanding those sets of commandments as being as applicable to Gentiles as mm -hmm. uh, you know uh, but I think you can't jump to that to the assumption then that the what's traditionally called the first table of the Decalogue uh, you know and that part of the reason that's significant is because of the, the Sabbath commandment right. that's the place which is the most significant because one could see I mean obviously not worshiping idols and everything like that is applicable to Gentiles um, but although maybe in somewhat different ways, um, but the Sabbath commandment, when it's then simply taken and applied to Sunday, as if the church is obeying the Sabbath commandment when it it's a, when it's honoring the day of rest um, uh, and, and the resurrection, I think becomes highly problematic. Um, or the way some Messianic Jews would want to take it, which is in the, from another angle, which is the idea that. The, the churches are disobeying God because they're not observing oh, the seventh yeah. day as the Sabbath. Yeah. Whereas, I, I think that's just as problematic from, from my point of view. Yeah. In that I don't think the church is required, is obligated to observe the seventh day. And say, I don't think there's a prohibition on it. And I think that if you know, Christians were want, want to kind of share, share something with Israel by doing it, they're, they can do that and could even experience blessing from it. It could be a fine thing. But that, but that the, the Shabbat commandment doesn't apply in the same way to the church as it does to the Jewish people. And, and one can get one of the ways it's easier to deal with that when one understands the Decalogue as a unit, as something that's still part of the broader covenantal bond that's distinctive to the relationship with the Jewish people. Well, that's actually... An, an, fascinating um, there's one last idea that we do not have time to explore but the there's another part of the first table of the commandments which I, I feel in my in my heart I feel like God wants to I feel like it's, it's part of the eschatological new covenant that is close to his heart and that's the name of God mm -hmm. yes because the, the name of God is is very much part of the of yeah. the part of the Decalogue, and and I think there's a wide gap in, right now between yes. the, the, the church yes. and the circumcision and the church yes. of the Gentiles understanding that, and I feel like it's very very important because if we look at John 17, over and over again, Jesus says, you know, I I have brought you glory, I have manifested your name. 
and you, I, you protect them by your yes. name. And I give them the, the glory of my name, the glory of your name. Yes. And the glory is key. The glory is key to our becoming one. Yeah. And the glory is tied up in the name. Yeah. And so I, I feel like that there's something, there's something there that is yeah. really, really important. Yes. I, I don't know if, if you are familiar with the book by, uh, by Kendall Solon on the name of God. Hogan just mentioned it to me. I have not read it. Yeah. It's, um, and it's like, it's a part one. He's writing the second part right now. Um, but it's, uh, it's a book about the name of God and the, the naming of the Trinity. So it's a book of Trinitarian theology um, in which um, he, he argues that there are three different ways of, of naming the Trinitarian God. So that there's a, like a Trinitarian pattern of Trinitarian naming. Um, and uh, you know that um, the, the way of naming God that corresponds to the Son um, is the naming of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, that we call God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because of the revelation of, of Jesus as the Son of God. You know, the, we, only, we, we know of Jesus as, of, or the God the Father as the Father of the Son and the Spirit as the Spirit of the Father and the Son. Uh, and so that this, this way of talking about God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is fundamentally derives from the revelation of the Son of God. And then um, the, the way of naming God, Trinita, uh, the Trinitarian God that corresponds to the Spirit he talks about is more like the infinite number of ways in which um, God can be named, the na name of God, God can be named based on God's presence and our encounter with God in the world. God is goodness. God is beauty. God is truth. All of these things, there's an infinite number of things we can say that God is that in effect become like, almost like proper names of God um, and that, that can be uh, infinitely expanded. Uh, and that is like corresponds to the sense of the, the way the spirit is present within the world um, manifesting himself. But then he basically says the name that, of the Trinity that corresponds to the Father is the Tetragrammaton. The yud -Hey, vav -Hey, uh, and that his argument is that this way of naming the Trinity, which was is is really it, it it's a way. It basically he, he speaks about it, and this is I think a good New Testament way of understanding the name the, the tetragrammaton, which fundamentally belongs to the Father and is bestowed upon the Son mm -hmm. and the Spirit, so that the Son and the Spirit also bear the na the name the tetragram yud -Hey, vav -Hey, um, you know, the, the, the four-letter name of God, um, but that it's rooted in, in, in fundamentally in the Father. And then he argues that, that this, this way of understanding the name of God has been largely lost and obscured in the life of the church. Uh, and then he sees that as being connected with the history of supersessionism. And that the recovery of the significance I, I, of the name of God is also tied to the recovery of the significance of Israel and the Jewish people. And, and, and the eschatological yes. fulfillments that yeah. are bringing us to Yeah. So it, it's a, 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 I, yeah, like Hogan, I would recommend that. Does he talk about the analogy of being an old 
Uh, I don't remember. Okay. I don't remember if he does. All right, we're going to take a little break and return uh, around 11.50 and have prayer, a bridge prayer session. Yes, that's right. That's right. You, it took a lot of work for you to come up with the, the <laughs> questions. And, <laughs> <laughs> that's, I just read your book. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I mean. It's not, this is not easy going. <laughs> the, that, I mean, the thing that struck me when you were talking about mutual indwelling is that phrase searching your own mystery is very related yes, to that. Yes, that's right. Very related to that. Precisely. It's this idea that the church doesn't look outwards to encounter the Jewish people, that you know that it it, it encounters the Jew and and what I also am arguing fundamentally is the mutual indwelling is caused because through Jesus because of Jesus dwelling in the church as well as dwelling in the Jewish people. That's why you have this reality of the the Jewish people and and the church dwelling in one another because they both also dwell in Jesus. So...